both of them. Um, Toussaint Bailey is the founder and CEO of Uplifting Capital. Uh, he's dedicated to helping people invest and engage in a manner that leaves them feeling uplifted, that results in, a, in meaningful progress. Prior to founding Uplifting Capital, he was CEO of Enso Wealth Management, a private wealth management firm. Toussaint joined in 2017. Shortly after its formation, he oversaw the firm's growth to ne nearly $2 billion of assets under management and its eventual acquisition by Corio. Before financial services, Toussaint spent over a decade as a practicing attorney. Uh, Toussaint serves in several advisory and board capacities, including Impact Investment Subcommittee of the Alternative and Direct Investment Securities Association, Investor Advisory Board of HBCU Founder Initiative, Executive Leadership Council of the Raphael House of San Francisco, Board of Directors of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, Advisory Board of Catalyst Housing Group, and Advisory Board of SIY Global. He's also a strategic advisor to FRSH. He has uh, a bachelor's in business administration from St. Mary's College of California and a JD from UCLA, UCLA School of Law. Please welcome my good friend, Mr. Toussaint Bailey. <laughs> and Aparna Ray is the founder of Moving Beyond. She's an educator by training, innovator by chance, disruptor by choice. She's a dynamic force dedicated to solving problems, connecting people, and building power. As an award-winning multi-startup founder, Aparna leverages data to shape workplaces that prioritize inclusivity, focusing on real-time employee voice and impact data grounded in human-centered design. In 2021, Aparna joined the exclusive cadre of female founders representing the remarkable 2% of women-owned businesses achieving a million dollars in revenue. Over the past decade, she has successfully launched and scaled numerous enterprises, including a groundbreaking workforce developmental program for immigrant and refugee women in the Pacific Northwest. Aparna played a pivotal role in building India's first online teacher education platform, impacting one million teachers in its inaugural year. In 2019, Aparna co-founded co Future for Us, a transformative platform for women of color in the workplace driving membership to an impressive 20,000 within the first 18 months. Her bio is a testament to a decade-long commitment to creating positive change and empowering individuals through innovation and impactful, impactful solutions. Please welcome my good friend, Aparna Ray. Okay, let me move a couple things here, and I will start with Aparna. Aparna, if you can please uh, share a bit about Moving Beyond. So if you can please start with Moving Beyond, provide the audience with a bit of context. Yeah, um, hi everybody, it's nice to be here. I'm soon to be the exiting founder of Moving Beyond. I just sold my firm um, two weeks ago. Yeah, so I started moving beyond um, almost four years ago from this you know, desire to leverage data in helping organizations operationalize equity. And you know, not just talk about equity and not write statements, but how does it show up in, in the day-to-day? -day? Because equity is, it's, it's really hard to do and it's even harder to scale. Any kind of organizational change is hard to do and hard to scale. And so for the last couple of years, I've been working on thinking about how, how we use data to, 
to make decisions that leads to change. And I think in the first session, Tim, you talked about, you know, we need lots of different kinds of data. Um, and so that's a lot of what we do is like, what are the different kinds of data that we need to create a scenario of how people are experiencing the organization? Who is it working for? Who is it not working for? And in what ways? Who are the people that are like really great for the culture of the organization? And who are the distractors? And, and, and what do we do with it, right? So that's the work I've been doing. And next year, I'm going to be on a sabbatical. Yay. <laughs> um, so I just realized that I didn't set very good context here. So thank you for, for allowing me to, to get this set up. Let me set better context. The day we've moved through the human, we've talked about the business case, and now this conversation is really focused on economic and societal impact. So how do we take the insights from the conversation with Tim? How do we take the insights from the conversation with Katie and Teresina and really start to frame it around quantifying the impact so that those that have those naysayers with the arms crossed about the importance of all these critically important topics, how do we bring this into quantifying and having a um, demonstrable impact that's beyond the qualitative? And these two are experts at that, which Parna just demonstrated. Toussaint, can you please share uh, about uplifting capital? I can, but first, just thank you, Sam, for pulling this community together. You know you're with your people. I was walking up slowly with this boot. And like just, I just started giggling as I was coming to the two doors. I'm like, I'm going to be uh, with Sam and with uh, like-minded people. So you know you are in your community when like, you literally just start smiling and laughing to yourself as you walk up. So feeling a lot of joy and gratitude uh, to be with you all. Um, Uplifting capital, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go back a few steps, um, uh, was born out of my experience in, in wealth management uh, and my, at times, separate experience um, trying to impact things that um, were needs for either people, planet, or economy. Um, so prior to uplifting, as Sam alluded to, I was the CEO of a firm called Enzo Wealth Management, where our mission was to translate wealth into fulfillment. Um, it was an incredible place, um, spent several years. Uh, I know Natalie's here, she was, she was kind of early in our Enzo journey. Uh, spent, spent several years building that with, with, uh, with a, an incredible group of people. Um, however, um, and I'm thankful to Tim for some of the language around kind of what I was experiencing uh, that I just learned today. Um, in 2020, um, with like, all of that came with COVID, like, like health disparities, um, us seeing what our planet could be when we stayed home, um, the murder of George Floyd uh, after a succession of, of murders of black bodies. Um, I, I found myself, uh, and, and George Floyd's uh, killing was really the tipping point, uh, becoming much more aware of grief uh, that I was experiencing. Um, to the point that you know, it, it brought me to, to tears uh, in my office um, the day I, I watched George Floyd's killing after watching um, Christian Cooper, the, the uh, black man who was bird watching in the park and had the police kind of weaponized against him. I, I watched those things in success, succession. Um, and I was, um, I've almost always been an only um, in the workplace uh, and Enzo was not an exception. I was the only black man there. Um, and it, it, was, it was this weird uh, experience where things that I had kept to myself uh, my whole professional life because it was much 
uh, tidier, um, much safer to kind of go into the workplace, put my head down, do good work and enjoy building a company with colleagues and then go home and talk about um, issues that I cared about in my community of origin. Uh, it, like having those things uh, separated uh, finally felt worse um, than, than, than integrating those things and so I just couldn't take it. Um, so this started with, and I'm giving a lot of background but, but it will become relevant. Um, uh, it started with a post on social media, so I'm not, I, prior to this, I was not a big uh, social media poster, never uh, on Facebook, certainly never on LinkedIn, but I, I posted this question, um, this rhetorical question, asking if America was better than this. Um, I was just like, you know, like I talked about having to go home and explain this to my daughters, uh, my, my, my three daughters, who uh, I feel with the idea that the world is good and full of hope. And so how do I go home and explain this thing? And I, I think I said, I, I won't. I, I'll just kind of quietly see the, the dinner table. Um, and so we had an all-hands meeting. Um, the, this was at the end of a week. We had an all-hands meeting uh, for our company that I was charged with leading um, that early that next week. It was on that, that next Tuesday. And at this point, I had not done it, really any work um, like toward the end of the I, I, I literally cried and ran out of my office. Um, so I hadn't done really anything. Um, and I was trying to think about how I was going to pull myself together. We do one-word check-ins um, at our at our company meetings, and I, I couldn't think of a word that that I wanted to say or that would encapsulate all this. And frankly, like I felt like this was a very individual experience, um, and, and so like the, those one-word check-ins are supposed to be vulnerable, and there's a place where we're supposed to connect. But I didn't know whether anyone would connect with this experience. So the only word that I could drum up was distracted, um, and I said it through this really shaky voice. Um, and then, like, slow, like, so that was my first uh, micro act of courage, like a little tiny act of courage, just first of all, showing up and then saying distracted. And then, uh, starting to explain why I felt distracted, I had this uh, experience of, like, not only me, and then I, you know, got choked up on, on the call other people joining me uh, in that. And I found out that I wasn't the only one who was grieving this, even though I was the only person who looked like me in the workplace. What was uncovered was that other people were really weighed down by, by what had happened, kind of didn't know what to do with that. Um, and so we spent, instead of going around and talking about business on that call, we spent the balance of that call, first of all, just kind of talking about what we were experiencing. Um, and then, uh, you know, this was a time when every non-black friend that I had was calling me and asking me what to do. <laughs> you know, like, what, what do I, like, I, I feel awful, what do I do? And so uh, work was no exception. Um, and so everyone was asking uh, what they should do. And my suggestion to them was what I had been t saying to other people. Just listen. Like, so first of all, like, if you do have that friend, um, call them, don't ask them about the experience of all people of color. Call them and ask them how they're doing as a human being. Ask them about their human experience. And then if they will endeavor to walk you through it, like give them an audience to talk about maybe a past act of racism that they might have experienced. Give them an audience to talk about maybe an ongoing bias in the workplace uh, that they're experiencing. Um, and then uh, ask them if they will permit you um, to share that with maybe some people who don't have access uh, to a friend like them who's across cultural differences. And so uh, that was sort of a suggestion. I left it there. Um, and then I had a colleague call me after, um, and he was uh, distraught about 
not having gone out to a protest in his town um, in response to George Floyd's killing. He said, I, like, I have a family. I don't feel safe. I, did, like, I didn't feel safe. I, and I, he started crying. He felt terrible. Um, um, white male, like squarely within the middle of the white male. <laughs> they matter. So, so he actually um, propelled me toward this journey. Um, and so I, like my, my conversation to him, his name was Drew Thompson. My conversation to Drew, which he, he has shared this, so I'm sharing his name uh, with his permission. Um, my, was that that's not his 1%. Uh, at our company, we talked about these 1% changes, uh, getting better every day, you know, these micro habits, uh, you know, a lot of the work from James Clear, Atomic Habits. And so in this area, I said, Drew, that's not your 1%. Like, if you went out there and it was not in alignment with yourself or the way you want to use your privilege or the way you want to make change, like it's going to be this big sweeping act, it's going to burn out and it's not going to be sustainable. Um, like, why don't you like just try the suggestion I said earlier. I said, you know, I made a joke with him. Every white person I know has at least one black friend. Why don't you call that one? Um, and, and so he, he like, he laughed and he said, you're actually my one. <laughs> and, so, and so would you share? And I was like, damn, Drew, like I wasn't talking about me and I'm not. Actually, three out of four white Americans have zero black friends. Oh, so, so like, no, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a, a progressive group of, of people. <laughs> Um, so I was Drew's one. Um, so I like we went through that exercise. Like I, I talked to him about what I was dealing with. Talked to him about you know what what growing up was like. We had this really rich conversation, and he was the person who actually encouraged me to share that process and share those conversations and share that framework more broadly, which I did. Um, so to start at this, I, so I took a sabbatical um, from my position at Enzo and I started something called the Just Listen Project where we um, shared this framework. We brought in um, speaking coaches, either uh, mindfulness professionals or therapists, and we brought in listening coaches with the idea of like kind of like helping people stay in empathy without sympathy and helping people to continue to give audience. Um, and then we recorded some of those conversations. I did one with, with Sam actually where I was the listener after some of the rise and some of the Asian Pacific Islander hate. Um, and it was incredible. I knew at that point I could not moonlight at this and go back to um, kind of putting my CEO hat on and, and, and doing this on the side. And so um, I started to think about how I could share um, not just this experience of working across differences, but the experience of unlocking um, the, the opportunity to impact something you cared about. Because the, uh, the surprising side effect of this, by the way, was I felt, I felt obligated to do this starting out. Like I just, it was a burden, I needed to unburden myself by doing this, but I found it surprisingly uplifting for me. I found like I was better, I was more of myself on the other side of this, and so wanting to share that, I started to go and actually talk to some companies about this whole idea of impact engagement, where you, know, you identify like, like sort of um, undiagnosed grief about things that you want to see move in a different direction. Um, you, you anchor some hope around um, not like closing your eyes and crossing your fingers and hoping things get better, but hope that if you have agency and take action, you can see change through that action. Um, things like examining resources that can be stretched rather than chasing new resources to start at the problem, and then um, imagining micro acts of courage. So what's a 1% start that you could take at this action? So that was the start. I, I started to talk about that framework um, and then um, started thinking about bringing that framework together with um, what I had built uh, in wealth management um, and the opportunity really uh, presented itself to do that through um, these impactful investments that uplift people, planet, and economy, really as, as a Trojan horse for helping people who are doing the impacting 
unlock these uplifting experiences. So it's uplifting, uplifting capital, not only um, like uplifting by doing, but it's also feeling uplifting uh, while doing. Um, and so that, that's the idea. We, we have um, been at it for a few years now, and we work primarily with wealth management firms to unlock this um, for their clients. Um, and it's, that, that's, that's the company, that's our, that's our work, is, is helping people um, uplift with their capital um, as one lever, and we also talk about other levers like philanthropy and volunteerism and advocacy and all those things, um, but the start of it is um, this kind of bilateral healing that we find when we do good for the world. Thank you. That's a lot of talk. Oh, I, I love it, I love it. There's so much there, so much there. So I, so I wanna kind of turn a corner in this conversation about um, economic value, right? So economic value, data-driven economic value. So too, you just made the strong case from, a, from an investment proposition, maybe we'll extend on that. But I'd love to, to go to Aparna about uh, what does the data tell us? How does data support inclusion as an uh, accelerant for economic value? and societal value. Societal value, less economic value, more. Yeah, um, I mean, I can talk about data all day, every day. Um, and I, I think it's worth saying that people don't make decisions based on data. They make decisions based on relationships. They make decisions based on emotions. They make, you know, they make decisions because they're afraid of something. And so data is really useful only when we're actually using it. Um, so what's the, what's, the, what's the data on the economic benefits of inclusion? I mean, tons. But before, before we talk about that specifically, I mean, I, I do want to say in kind of like a level set around some of the terms that we like to throw around. So you started the morning with co the conversation on you know the GDP, right? So um, if the loss of um, economic value could be measured, you put uh, an amount to it, eight, $8 trillion, right? It would be the third largest country in the world by GDP. GDP is like all the goods that are produced. Um, but here's the thing, like people don't eat weapons of mass destruction. Like we don't eat bombs and we don't eat tanks. Like we eat food. And so when we start talking about economic value, it's worth asking for whom? And I think Theresita, you asked that question as well, right? Like for whom? And so the economic value of inclusion from the point of view of doing it at work is we pay people living wages, um, which translates into their ability to buy goods and services that they need to thrive, to live, to be successful. Um, it means that we're managing workloads so that people are not burning out and they're not overworked and they're not taking three buses to get to a job where they're not even guaranteed employment for that day, right? And at the end of all of it, we get to live in a world where there isn't mass homelessness. We get to live in a world where everybody has what they need. Um, and in the very least, everybody has a shelter that's safe, food, you know, a couple of meals a day. I'm gonna say three-ish, right? Four snacks. Um, and 
that they're protected from the worst kind of calamities, right? That I, I, and so it means that we're not extracting wealth upwards into the kind of people that you work with, um, right? It means the economic value um, of doing inclusion is actually better income distribution, which means all of us have slightly better lives. And I think that that's the research, a lot of the blue zone research, there's a lot less income inequality in places like Okinawa. Um, there's also a lot less income volatility in places like Okinawa. Right, right, love that, love that. So maybe Tucson, if you can extend off of that into, um, you know, you, you, there's a phrase, I don't think you referenced it, uh, impact alpha, and, and mm. I think that's the duality of uplifting, but can you maybe touch on that um, in extending just how your work drives toward an investment proposition that then fortifies an economic proposition as well? Yeah, I, I think um, like this, this concept is aligned with a lot of what we've been um, talking about today, even starting with uh, Tim and talking about the idea of uh, happiness, uh, like existing without flourishing, maybe missing something or uh, in the workplace, um, extracting performance without uh, sort of the, the sense of contribution and legacy feels unsustainable. So the idea of um, th this is all moving us up from this concept of looking at these things as altruism to reframing these things as the enlightened self-interest, which they are. Um, and so the idea of impact alpha is where we create impact. So we have these uh, nine different impact themes that, that uh, fall within big buckets of improving people, planet, and economy. And everywhere that we look to measurably and, man and manageably um, and, and materially make impact, we are looking for uh, financial return. And so there's, there's this whole spectrum of, of, of ways to impact the issues that we go at, whether that's sustainable food and agriculture systems, climate change, affordability of housing, financial inclusion, diversity, justice, diversity, equity, inclusion. All of those issues can be got at from philanthropy and certain aspects of those issues need philanthropy and government policy. Some of those are best gotten at through concessionary investing. So not market rate investing, but some, some sort of profit seeking. Uh, we look at the nexus between uh, full power capital markets and, and improvements uh, to these issues. Think, you know, like, it, it, yeah, uh, there's all sorts of uh, examples, but like one example is Inclusion Alpha. Like one of our investment theses is, you know, if we invest in diverse um, fund managers, so investment managers, if we invest in uh, diverse founders, diverse teams, or, or companies that are seeking to impact diverse communities, financial outcomes are better. And, and it's been proven. I think BlackRock just did a, a big study on, on gender balanced teams uh, outperforming. And that's a funny word to, uh, that's a funny company to reference here. But they did a big study. Um, <laughs> uh, and and it's, it shows itself over and over again. We are not a gender balanced company. We are uh, overbalanced with women, we're committed to being that, not because we think it, you know that's only the right thing to do, but enlightened self-interest. Like we we are better because of it. We work in private wealth where women are by 2030 will be the mass old holders of wealth. Like you need a frame of reference, and so that th those intersections show themselves all over the place. Um, and so that's the conversation that we have with investors, and it, and it, we've now gotten to the point where. Um, you can build a total 
uh, we, we work in the private markets, but you could sort of build a total portfolio that's healthy for an individual out of only impactful investments. And so that's, um, that's our work. We, we, we study that and we give up nothing. And women and non-white founders, right? Like when you and I met, a year, I think almost a year ago, we, we talked about this, that they consistently build profitable businesses. So you might not have as many unicorns, right? But you're also consistently not having as many Adam Newmans, um, yeah. right? Yeah, and the only reason you don't have as double many- Double edge of the unicorn. Um, yeah. you only, the only reason, sorry, I did not mean to talk over mm. you. The only reason uh, you don't have as many unicorns is because those populations get a combined 1.4% of all assets, uh, all, all investment, right? Like, so asset, like asset holders, assets are led by 99 or 98.6% white males. Um, and so you would have as many unicorns. They have to be profitable because they don't have venture capital coming to them. And so part of our thesis is also when you find those people and when those people see opportunities in their communities better, those companies outperform. So we are seeking to get capital there, uh, both Impact Alpha and Inclusion Alpha. So I'm going to seed one question with them, and then I'm going to do my walk the mic around for a Q&A out here. Um, so the question is about um, I'm probably most people in this room have a 401k. They have some type of investment proposition within their life. If we're talking about affecting change, right? Affecting change and using currency, money as an opportunity to affect that change. What are uh, how how can they take action on on that objective and goal? And what does the data tell us? Go buy a purple vest, right? <laughs> like, so <laughs> seriously, vest. no. So support supporting those like so maybe the maybe it's maybe it's an investment case and it's with the four hundred one k and I, I would certainly advocate for that opportunity and, and I know we won't charity our way there, right? So so yes, that's the way that we have historically gotten at these problems. But the power of the consumer, the power of the investor are certainly there. And so being mindful of the kinds of companies that you support and what they do, um, I think uh, the private markets are a very, very, very unique uh, place because the innovation happening there looks different and, and, is, and is less constrained than what a Fortune 500 company can do. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's uh, public markets portfolios that have companies that do the right things, those are ESG portfolios that you can look at um, the right things along certain pillars, companies with diversity, you can look at, um, you can invest in shareholder advocacy with those, those big companies, those are in the public markets and the private markets, you can invest in the kind of things that we do and those investments are becoming increasingly accessible. Um, we work typically with wealth managers and so raising these things with, with your wealth managers, a lot of what I encounter is I don't know if I have clients who would be interested in this, right? Um, and so telling whoever your financial professionals are that this is important to you um, is is important to these causes. I don't know. <laughs> Go. <laughs> well, you already know I feel some kind of way about this, Sam. Um, That's why I asked the question. Let I mean, rip. you're baiting me. Um, <laughs> so, look, I, yes, like, please put money in your 401k, please do the Roth, make the contributions and the matches and the blah, blah, like your HSAs, do, like do it, right? I, I mean, I think that that's important. Um, put, put money away and you have to earn it 
to be able to put it away, you know? And so I think part of the, part of where I feel challenged, so there are two places where I feel challenged with this question. One is that we live in a country where close to 75% of the population doesn't have $1,000 in cash if there is an emergency. And so what does that actually mean? I mean, $1,000 is not a lot of money. It's like what a lot of people are spending on groceries these days every single month. And so it, you know, like, Folks don't have the money to put away into vehicles like 401ks, but vehicles like 401ks and a lot of other investment vehicles that you know, like you can talk a lot more about. Um, for me, they're like we're locked into a, a little bit of a suicide pact with companies because our ability, right, for that capital to grow is dependent on companies like. Amazon continuing to grow year over year, right? Like that's how you're making money and that's dependent on them selling us a bunch of shit, right? Like it's not the purple vest that you're gonna wear for 20 years. Um, okay, but like the planet is finite. Our needs are also actually finite. We don't need a lot of crap every year. And so how then do we secure our retirements if we're bound up in this, like companies grow and we buy stuff, right? Like right, like over the last couple of weeks, like the, the stock of Raytheon has right up through the roof. Okay, but like I don't want us to be in a world that's at war constantly. So what is it gonna mean for the investors of Raytheon, right? Like in a world where there is actually peace, we don't need Raytheon. And we're gonna have to find our way out of this mess. And so, um, yeah, I mean, if nothing else, please get a financial advisor, get like a good, smart, kind human who's gonna help you manage your money. I think in, in the short term, all of us need that. All of us need somebody who has, um, and I'm, I, that's not me, right? Like, I'm not a financial advisor. I have one, and she is really great at helping me understand what's happening in the world. Um, and we need to shift more into businesses that are making better decisions for the planet, that are making good decisions for their people right now. And I, as somebody who works more on the human capital side of things, I can tell you that if a company isn't kind to its people, if a company isn't paying them living wages, the decisions they're making outside of that are probably not great for our communities. They're probably not great for our planet. They're likely extremely extractive. And at the end of the day, um, the power rests with decision makers to act with integrity every single day and the higher up you're in the food chain the harder it is going to be because the stakes just are exponential all day every day and so white guy you know over here he asked in the last session how do i become a better ally okay there's a lot of I like white guys i see a lot of plaid shirts friends find some color um literally also take, take it easy Aparna. Um, uh, right, but I, I think that it, it becomes, I think it, it becomes incumbent on those folks instead of coming to us and saying, what can we do better? I'm like, you can be better. You can make better decisions. 
Um, and that doesn't require a conversation on how I'm experiencing racism, right? Like that requires being mindful of it, the financial implications of the decisions that we're making all day, every day. I'll say yes and, right? Because to like, one of the things that I was wrestling with in my last position was I was suffering, but I was also wrestling with my own privilege. Like I, I, I was in a privileged position. We are, we're, we're all here in the US, like born into at least enough wealth that you're spending this time here today on a weekday, it's, it's Friday, right? Um, so enough privilege that you're here. You may be here for your company. And so one of the things that I, my hope was to liberate people from um, with the Just Listen project and, and still at um, Uplifting Capital is this idea that we should be ashamed uh, or that we must be ashamed for the privilege that we have. Like, privilege is a really, really powerful lever for change. Like, and, and I think um, the practice that, that I recommend is taking inventory of that privilege um, and taking inventory of where the gaps are between the world you want to see and the world that you live in and examining how that privilege might be applied to close that gap. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, and that to me is um, as much an opportunity as it is a burden. Like, and and I, I, I came into this work um, perceiving it to be a burden. Um, I learned on the other side of that, like the exercise of a, a privilege that I had. So I was running this wealth management firm. I had the privilege to take a sabbatical because I wasn't feeling good inside, right? Like, oh, I don't feel good inside. I'm gonna take a sabbatical and work on this thing that I care about. That's an incredible amount of privilege. And I kept my job and my paycheck kept coming. Um, so, so first of all, the, the idea that I could do that. Um, and then I had this opportunity to have this conversation with all these people with all this wealth. Um, and one approach to that could have been like, how dare you, <laughs> right? Like, like uh, how dare you have me be the only black person in this firm? I could have turned to my, my, my colleagues and said that. Um, you know, they, they would have deserved it, right? Um, but I didn't find that to be a useful exercise of my privilege at that point in time. And it's also um, just sort of when I think about my own top five strengths, my top five Clifton strengths, it's also out of alignment with how I, I would go about that work. And so I will, I will say, yes, we, there, there is uh, more that we all should do, but I do think um, ex like just taking inventory of, of what you have without shame um, like I, I think uh, the the advice to, to own your your identity was was sound, um, and own the privilege that comes with that identity because I can't give the same level of platform that you could give uh, as a leader. I don't get into the same rooms that you get in, and my voice doesn't carry the same in those rooms as yours. And so I think it's super important that we take inventory of what levers we have um, to affect change. And rather than beating ourselves up about the fact that we have them, we, we activate them in a way that not only uplifts others, but, but actually 
leaves us feeling uplifted uh, at the same time. That's available. Th that, that can happen. And I think doing it in a way that's in alignment with us internally is the only sustainable way to do it. Um, otherwise, you're, you're going at these problems and you're shooting all over yourself and you look up and you don't have the energy to continue to go at the problems after about a month. Like we're seeing that now in DEI, right? Like everybody was all about it and now they're tired <laughs> because like the way that we went about it just wasn't sustainable. Um, like my, my advice um, to people when I was doing the Just Listen project was like, let, let listening be your advocacy right now. Like don't, don't jump into, uh, you know, don't, don't go writing a check right now. Don't, don't go and, and jump onto the front lines. If you haven't listened um, to somebody who has this li lived experience, like let listening be your advocacy. It can be that small, and I would suggest that it, it does start that small um, and, and like with sustainability in mind rather than kind of size and grandiosity in mind. I love that. I love that. So just I'll, I'll send it out to the room for two questions uh, and then we'll and then we'll jump. I think one important point. So when we had the prep call for this conversation, it was pretty electric, as you can possibly <laughs> imagine, um, a wide range. And I think the, the point that we're trying to drive home here is that these are systems. Many of these are mutually reinforcing, not mutually exclusive. Right. And if it's all built around how do you take how do you activate an action? Sometimes that action is just listening and just just sitting in that space and absorbing. Sometimes it's taking action with all of your privilege and all of your opportunities and your facilities that are at your disposal, whatever, whatever those may be. Right? And so the range of the conversation was pretty wide in the prep call. I think that's showing up in this room. But it's to reinforce that point on how do you take action on something? How do you line your actions and your priorities in a meaningful way, ultimately? Okay. So, Danica. Thank you both for um, what you've shared. Um, this one's mostly directed at Toussaint. Um, one of the words that you mentioned when you were telling your story was grief. Mm. And I feel like that is, um, we talked about loneliness as well, but feels like such a weight um, on everybody right now. And what I love about you and getting to know you a little bit better this year is how you have transformed that into joy and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more to how that, what the catalyst was. I mean, you talked about the George Floyd murder specifically, but how did you take that grief and in such a short time, in three years, create something so joyful and so um, uplifting and powerful? Yeah, so uh, actually, that, I, I, I had been reading a book on grief uh, before uh, George Floyd's murder I was dealing with like the loss of my mom and like starting to get to a place where I was where I could uncover that. And so one of the authors of the five stages of grief, David Kessler, wrote about this sixth stage of grief um, and he called it finding meaning. Um, and this book was written way after the first five stages. And what he found was that he, he lost his adult son um, to, to a drug, uh, yeah, drug overdose. Um, and like hit the final, the fifth and final stage in the first uh, iteration of the concept was acceptance, um, and he found that like he just couldn't get there. Like th this idea that like he th his last stage, and, th and these stages are not prescriptive, right? They're 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 descriptive, and so it's not like he was taking himself through this process. But he just found that 
he he didn't feel finality at acceptance and so he started to to look at all these people who had done different things with their grief they had they had taken their like mothers against drunk driving um, many of those mothers have been grieving and they took their grief and they sort of unlocked um, something with their grief and it doesn't have to be uh, it, it wasn't always um, advocacy or, or trying to change the world but people had found some sort of meaning in their grief and he found that that was um, uh, a processing mechanism that showed up in people who found themselves wholehearted again after after grieving um, and so that that uh, that concept, I think, was there, um, and I, I also um, do a lot of work in, in the, the mindfulness uh, space and, and spent a lot of time, I think, um, understanding my internal uh, experience and giving words to my internal experience. I, I had been, uh, like, there was this uh, uh, sort of um, merging of factors. I'd been working with a therapist around my, my blackness in the workplace leading up to this, um, and so uh, thinking about um, these two disparate parts of myself, um, my, my, like, we called it Roots Toussaint, so like the, the person who was over here, who would come from my community of origin, and then professional Toussaint over here, and thinking about um, not only a, a, a version of myself and working toward a version of myself that integrated those two things, but actually transcended um, either of those things while integrating those things. And so all of these, all of these things were at play, but I think um, what, was, what was most top of mind was this idea that there could be healing um, and even something better on the other side of finding meaning through grief. And so I, I did that process. Um, looked at some of the work on um, hope. Angela Duckworth um, in her book Grit has a great chapter on a different kind of hope, this anchored um, optimism. Um, so I was like, all this comes from business books. I was like reading these business books and like, oh, this applies to my, my stuff. And so hope. Um, and then from, from an agency standpoint, there's another great business book called Stretching, um, where the author of that talks about the creativity and quality of thought that comes when we think of ourselves as resource constrained. So, so stretching to solve problems rather than chasing new resources. Um, to solve problems, and then um, uh, just thinking about the power of, of compounding habits, um, microacts of courage is where it like came from some of that like James Clear um, work. And so I had this framework that sort of just came together, and I started to share that framework. But but walking through that process was my process. Um, thank you both for, for being here and for sharing um, your stories and your time with us. Um, one thing that I've found interesting about this session is that, like, a partner, you touched on this earlier about how people make decisions based on feeling, not necessarily on data. And so there's like this rational part of our brain that operates on a day-to-day -day basis when we're at work and when we're talking about things like economics and finances and um, HR and things like that, right? But at the core of us, we're feeling beings, we're feeling creatures. Can you both talk more about how to bridge that gap between feeling and rationalizing how we spend our money, not just as individuals, but as organizations as well? That's your question? I have a thought. Do so you have thinking time? Oh my gosh, I need some thinking time. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. so this, is, this is at the forefront of, <laughs> of what we think about. And so um, I talked about the, these two different um, like, attributes of, of investment, impact 
and, and finance. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, uh, a proliferation of impact investment firms that are working on both of those things. How do we, how do we um, create measurable and, and, and material impact uh, while uh, kind of aligning that with financial return? We have a third pillar um, to how we think about um, investment that we think is just as essential as like the tangible impact and the tangible financial return. We call that impact engagement. And so one of the, the third attribute that our investments have to have is they have to be emotionally resonant. Um, because if people can't feel the stories in these investments or people can't feel their lived connection with these investments, they're not going to go toward them. So we're not dealing with like pensions and endowments that have historically started toward the impact investing or like divesting from South Africa and oil and all those things. We're dealing with people. Um, and so like emotional resonance actually has to, in my mind, has to be a part of um, the process of pulling people in and it has to be elevated above something that we think about as a nice to have or window dressing on pulling people into impactful things. Um, I think it has to be thought of as the work, like the storytelling, the, the, um, the connection, the discovery of values, like so first discovering values and then aligning those with what the world needs um, has to be integrated into the process of change making. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so I'll, I, I'll actually give you a, uh, maybe a more tactical answer in how I've been approaching this work over the last couple of years, not in, not in the earlier phases of my entrepreneurship journey at all, right, is uh, more and more when I walk into the room with senior leaders, executives, CEOs, and the data is shit, you know? Like, the data is telling a story that feels very challenging to communicate. Um, I'm really leaning into somatics and I'm really leaning into some mindfulness practices to get the room quiet, to get people a little bit quiet so that they can hear, right? You've talked a lot about listening as, as being important. And, and then when we're diving into the stories that the data is highlighting, taking time to get leaders to reflect about how that's making them feel so that if they've said, gosh, like it really sucks to hear that 86% of our employees are living in poverty. Like I feel that in the pit of my stomach, I can get them to a place where they're gonna make decisions differently rather than trying to approach it logically. And with one of our clients this year, we haven't done one, but we've actually gotten them to do two pay increases for the bottom 75% of their workforce. And that's thousands of employees, right? And, and that's how we've gotten there. So instead of saying, hey, like the data says that, you know, 86% of like your workforce lives in poverty, gosh, right? But center, get quiet, actually ask people about how it's making them feel and get them to make different decisions. And honestly, you know, like, it actually works. It sounds a little woo-woo, it sounds a little hokey, but it can work, but it doesn't work the, the, it doesn't work the first time, right? So you have to practice doing it on a consistent basis. You have to build the capacity to slow down, listen, use words, and then you can really leverage it. And you get your home run on a, on a day where the stakes are really high when you're gonna try and convince a CEO to spend an extra $30 million in payroll. 
right? Like that's when you get to, to get your home run. That's a great, yeah. I love that. Uh, that's a perfect cap for this. I'm afraid to look over my shoulder at the clock because I think I did very poor in clock management. But I think um, <laughs> what, what the two of you encapsulated right there captures the essence of what we're trying to drive this entire conversation. It's this, um, you know, the, I, I think I actually heard this from Teresita in the midlife program. The, the brain, or you can hold two truths, mm. right? We can hold two truths at once. And um, I think what we're grappling with as a society is this kind of tension between wanting to do something but also existing within a capitalist structure that I think most, maybe everyone in this room is working tirelessly to change. Right? And so it comes back to, well, how do you change it? So where does it start? And so I'll, I'll kind of bring it full circle into the opening remarks about the, the mundane to the sacred, right? The mundane to the sacred. There's something in this room that everyone has the opportunity and they have agency and control to affect that change. And what that is has to be some type of an alignment between your priorities and your actions. So please thank the two of these incredible leaders. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.